Okay, hi there, and welcome to the uh, Peter Rollins Industrial Complex, otherwise known as my bedroom. Um, you know, this, the last couple of days I've been reading some work on uh, beliefs and symptoms and uh, the concepts of alienation and separation. Uh, I'm kind of tr I'm trying to work on a talk at the moment. Um, so I'm going to like, uh, I'm, I'll forget about the beliefs thing, but I would like to talk about separation and alienation and um, what these terms might mean in a very basic way and then how they connect with uh, kind of parotheology. So, okay, where will we start? At a very simple level, um, and, and basically, I'm not going to throw a lot of names out at you, but I'm, I'm really using a lot of Lacanian notions uh, in this little reflection. But uh, alienation can be described um, on a, at a personal level as kind of the moment when you experience you know, separation uh, as an infant. You experience separation from the primary caregiver, which is often your mother. Uh, I don't know who said the famous phrase, but you know, mother is the name of God on every infant's lips uh, or something like that. But basically, you know, you, you're, you're separated from your family psychologically. You see yourself as different. Um, and that's, that's alienation. But what the child wants is they want to, uh, you know, uh, get the desire of the one that they've lost. So I, I guess when, when you're a child, uh, your family interpret your crying. They interpret your movements and your actions, and they attempt to respond to those things. So even before you're able to you know, think or anything like that, you are sending out signals, and some other is reading those signals. And sometimes they're read very badly. Um, if you kind of grew up in a very a difficult family context where your parents, for whatever reason, were not able to read your signals and read what you were wanting and what you were needing, um, you know, that can be very traumatic and cause a lot of problems. But, you know, usually, hopefully, your parents, to a greater or lesser extent, they are reading your responses. They're reading your symptoms. It's kind of similar to an analysis when, you know, the idea the analyst is there to read your symptom to let you know what it's about. Um, and, and actually, that's something that's problematic, we might get back to. But, so the infant then, as they, as they become a child, they, they often see their parents as, as godlike figures, omnipotent figures, who are able to know them better than they know their self. And so if you look at children's behavior, you'll see that children are, are always trying to evoke the desire of you know, their, their caregivers. Uh, so say again, it's the mother. They're, they're trying to work out what does my mother desire and how can I fit in that? What, what is my place in her desire? So the idea is that, that your mother or your father, they, they have certain desires. And if you're able to fit into those, if you're able to evoke them, you're able to become the object of that desire. And you know, that can feel really good for the child. But a second thing happens a kind of in normal development, and that's what we can call it separation. And separation is the moment when you begin to realize that you can't fulfill your mother's desire uh, or your father's desire because they don't know what they desire. 
because they don't have a very simple desire to fit into. So the first stage alienation is you're separated from the other, but you want to be the instrument of the other's desire. So if that doesn't happen, psychosis is kind of the result. But if in this initial separation, it's our initial alienation, uh, you have this idea that you can be that which satisfies the other. You can be that which, which um, you know, fulfills the other and their desire, right? And that's, co- that's called perversion, actually, is where the perverse subject is the one who um, uh, kind of thinks that they can be everything for the other or um, that the, the other has a simple desire. So what happens is, because people have demands, a demand is you do X, you do Y, you do Z, right? Um, but if you obey the demands of your parents, for example, or your boss, it doesn't mean you're fulfilling their desire because demands are easy to see. You can work out what someone demands, but what they desire is fluid, it's moving, you can never grasp it. And the realization of that kind of frees you to think for yourself. You go, I cannot satisfy the desire of the other because the other is alienated from themselves. It's not that I'm just alienated from the other, the other is alienated from themselves. And so now I'm free from from this obsessive attempt to try to work out what the other wants from me. What what can I do to win over my parents' respect? What can I do to win over my family's um, desire and to to get them to to love me? Because you realize that, oh, uh, not consciously, but unconsciously, you realize that that's an impossibility, that you can't you know, fully evoke that. The more you chase after it, the more elusive it becomes. And actually, you need to be freed from that. Now, the reason why I think this is a very interesting notion is you can apply it to culture. Um, In everyday life, we're often trying to work out what the other wants from us. Um, And this is what Kierkegaard called uh, the herd. Uh, Heidegger called it the they. It's when someone says, for example, scientists think, right? Now, what does that mean, scientists think? Of course, it's a shorthand for, you know, like scientists think that global warming is real. But, but it, it's kind of like it is a form of group think because there's no such thing as scientists. There are scientists, but there's, they're all in different, you know, that's a species and there's different kind of like subspecies in that, you know, physicists, chemists, biologists. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, you know, so a physicist working on something about black holes you know, whatever they think about what uh, global warming, you know, is probably as well informed as myself or somebody else. But, you know, we, we say, you know, are they, you know, whenever your parents say you shouldn't do that, people will talk. The people will talk is what Kierkegaard calls the herd. It's, that doesn't exist, but it kind of does exist. It insists. There is this notion that there's some other out there who knows the way we should behave and we're trying to work it out trying to work out what the other wants from us Uh, so if you go to a party uh you you might feel insecure about whether you're conducting yourself correctly especially if you know you're a fish out of water if it's a very high class black tie event for example and you're not used to those you go in and you're like trying to work out what do they want you to do and you can do entire courses 
about you know how to you know the correct way to hold knives and forks and the correct you know wine glasses to use and all of that so if you come from a working class background and you go to you know a very upper class meal uh you know you might have to like look up google and try and work out what what the rules are but um she's at point site an interesting thing which is uh that actually gives away that you're not from that class because when you do all of the rules correctly as in all the demands you fulfill all the demands um you don't you stick out because actually part of it is there's it's you have to also know when to break the rules you have to be comfortable with them and comfortable to kind of make mistakes so you can't actually win you know you you try to fulfill the demands of this other the they um and it always kind of feels if you take an example i've seen this a lot but i've got, i have a friend who um has a job in a conservative uh, university in america and he has been able to keep that job and you know in fact does very well in that job when other people who very much to the line have have lost their jobs or not done as well as him and it's interesting because in a sense other people are fulfilling the demands of the university just like a a worker is always trying to say always you know um uh fulfilling the demands of the employer always trying to do what they say but actually that's it comes across really badly right if you know they do everything that the employer demands but they can't evoke the desire of their employer because these are two slightly separate things whereas if you're just comfortable and you don't care you're actually more likely to do well you know so my friend he sees through you know there this this notion of the other who you have to try to appease and he realizes he just goes like I don't really care I just do what I do and uh, it kind of works better for him now actually I actually know um a woman uh who used to be an it girl and uh, an it girl is someone who a woman who is able to very easily socially ingratiate themselves into high high society and they are at all the parties celebrity stuff and all of that but you you talk to her um you know she feels as much a fraud as anybody else she is the embodiment of the they in that environment and she can play the game but but there is no they she's like you know i feel as much an imposter as everybody else um so what happens is any it's a very neurotic thing whenever someone is saying like you know what should i do what how should i act what do they want what is demanded of me it's kind of like unconsciously there is this big other who knows the answer who knows how you should behave and you're either trying to appease that big other or you might be trying to reject that big other you might be trying to you know define yourself in opposition to it uh but both of these i think are pr- are problematic the real trick is to realize that this big other is a fiction that it is alienated from itself that that the desires of society cr- crash together and don't coalesce well and the more you try to appease this big other the kind of the worse it is so that's alienation which is you feel separate from this other is making demands on you but you still think that the other has this simple desire and if only you do the right thing you'll be able to you know like please it or you'll be able to piss it off and then separation 
which is when you realize, oh, I'm not just alienated from the other. The other is alienated from itself. Um, the other that I'm trying to find out what they desire, the they, the herd, is uh, self-contradictory, riven, group. My, the reason why I, I'm interested in this is because theologically speaking, you see this move. Um, so in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, there's a thing called you know, the covenants. And these covenants are designed uh, to, I mean, people think covenants are designed actually to bring you close to the other, to God, right? But actually covenants are precisely the opposite. They are there to kind of pull you apart from God. Uh, so think about um, if you go through a divorce, uh, the reason why you go to court and you get uh, you know, uh, contracts is not to be close to the other person, but to protect yourself from the other's desire, to protect yourself from, you know, they may turn around and say, well, I actually don't want you to see the kids. And so you have to have a legal thing to say, well, no matter what your desire does, I can still see the kids. Or in a business contract, a business contract isn't designed to bring two people together. It's designed to distance you from the other's desire. So again, you know, the two business partners might start despising each other, but technically the contract is there to protect you from the desire of the other, which fluctuates, to give a little bit of distance. So in a sense, what you see is this notion of alienation, that within the Hebrew scriptures, there's this attempt to separate from, from this other. But the view you know, still remains that this other you know, has the answers, knows everything, is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, etc. Now, what you find in Christianity, and by the way, this is in Judaism as well. It's in the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, but I'm going to kind of look at it in terms of Christianity. In Christianity, uh, you have this idea on the cross. Uh, you have this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, theologically speaking, why that's so interesting is because it, all religions have a space for alienation. You know, you, you feel separated from the ground of being because either of your subjectivity, because of dualistic thinking, or because of you've done something wrong because of rebellion and sin, or it's an illusion that has to be overcome through meditation, um, or it's a trial to test your fidelity, or even... It's just a part of what it means to be human. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe one day we will be one with the divine, one with the ground of being, one with the universe again. But to be human is to be alienated from this other. But in Christianity, you have this interesting idea that the other is alienated from itself, which is, which is actually very, very radical. Whenever, so God says, why have you forsaken me? God experiences the loss of God. So this can be said as a theological way of saying that the Christian experience is the realization that the big other is not consistent with itself. That, and, and actually to experience alienation from the other is to stand in the very heart of the Christian experience. So this is what Shizek means when he says he's an atheist Christian, because he says that the, you have, this Christian experience is the experience not in which you are separated from God, because that's, you know, that's common kind of religious language, but it's where God is separated from God. 
It's the realization that this other um, is not whole and complete. And then the idea is that this insight births a new way of being in the world, a new creation, a new type of community, which is called theologically the epoch of the Holy Ghost, a different form and different understanding of the absolute arises. And so in taking responsibility for your life and not putting that onto some other and having to, to make decisions and having to, to act in fear and trembling without knowing what the herd or God or fate or history um, or historical necessity or any of these ideas without having some frame that tells you exactly how you should act um, is entering into this new form of being where you're freed from the uh, always trying to go, what do they think? What does society want of me? What does God want of me? What does destiny want of me? What does fate want, right? Uh, what's karma want, right? Always finding some big other that holds the answer and we're trying to always work it out to the idea that, oh, reality itself is fractured. And again, this is not conscious, but when you experience this existentially, and that's, again, what you see in Christianity is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is an existential experience. It's an agonizing experience. But it then breaks you free from this, this uh, connection to the big other, which then leads to resurrection, which resurrection being a new form of life. You, you resurrect into the death of God where you're able to live in undecidability, in unknowing. Uh, this connects a little bit with mystics, the mystics who embrace doubt, complexity, and unknowing, who um, embrace this, um, you know, this, this space of uh, uh, radical contingency and uncertainty. The difference is it's kind of mysticism on speed. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's at the very, it's not that we, we don't know now, but one day we will know. It's the very breaking of that entire way of thinking. And you go, oh, we know that we do not know. This is an experience of, of radical unknowing. Um, I'll give you one interpretation um, of a, a well-known Bible verse that I think grasps this, and then see if you've got any questions. As I say, this is very informal. If you listen, if you're the first time listening to me, um, then you'll be like, oh, "What is this stuff?" Uh, I apologize. Um, it's not got bells and whistles, so it's it's not you know. There's no shameless stories. It's just kind of some thoughts that I'm working through. I'd like to write a book on this at some stage. But you know, in First Corinthians, it says, um, "You you know in part, and you see in part, but then you will know fully as you're fully known." Right? Basically, so it's like through a glass darkly, you see as through a glass darkly. But one day, you know, you will see clearly. Now, the conservative reading of this is that uh, we see through a glass darkly. As in like we, we have general revelation, they would call it. We see from the world, you know, we can make certain claims to what the divine is like. But there is a point when we see clearly, and that is revelation that's the specific revelation that's christ and that's the bible the canon closed canon so a conservative reading is is that this this is actually referring to to, to to today you know you can kind of you once you get specific revelation then you see fully um you see the reality you see you know god right 
The more liberal view is, no, this is about the future. We see dimly now, but one day when we die, hey, we'll get all the answers. Then we will know fully. So both readings have this notion that we have unknowing, but one day we'll have knowing either here and now or in the next life. But I think, you know, a radical reading of this verse is to say, no, 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 no. Um, what's being claimed is slightly different. Um, the conservative and the liberal views are saying this. We don't know now, but someday we will know. And, we will, and what will we know? We will know the revelation. We will know knowledge. We will know the truth. We will know the kind of the mind of God. But actually, it doesn't claim that. It says we will know. What you can do is you can read it and say, we, we see through a glass darkly, but Christianity is the experience where we know. What do we know? We know that we don't know. We know that this idea of a consistent, clear universe doesn't work. Right? Now, this is, the, you know, this is the difference between Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics. In Newtonian physics, you have this idea that, well, we don't know why the universe works completely. But in principle, we know it does work and it does make sense. And so eventually we'll, we'll know. In principle, we can know how it all figures out, it all works. But then in quantum mechanics, a different kind of knowledge comes in. You know that the universe itself is um, antagonistic within itself. You know, so you've got double slit experiments, you have wave particle duality, you know, you have um, superpositions, you have Schrodinger's cat, you have, you know, you have this idea that, that actually there's something at the very heart of nature itself that is not at one with itself. So the move from Newtonian physics, which is, you know, we don't know, like, there's stuff that we don't know, but in principle, there's a blueprint and it can all be known. It all makes sense. And if we knew everything, if we knew the position of every molecule and the, the velocity of every molecule, we could work out everything. We could tell everything from the past and we could tell everything about the future. If we knew everything about the position and speed of everything now. But then in quantum mechanics, it's like, no, no, no. What we actually do is we get an insight into the unknowability of the world. Not an unknowability because we don't know, but we're humble. But, you know, one day we will know. But no, it's an unknowability that we can know. And so in the verse in Corinthians, you'll notice it says, you shall know as you're fully known. So what does it mean to fully know somebody? Well, to fully know somebody is to know that you do not know them. To fully know someone, to really know someone well, is to know that they are an enigma to us and to themselves. That so weirdly, the less you know someone, the more you can think you know them. You know, like on Twitter or something like that, people can write people off so quickly. Like people you don't know at all, you can absolutely, oh, I know what they are, I know what they stand for. Whereas when you really know somebody, you can't do that because with the knowledge of the person comes the knowledge that that you can't compartmentalize them, that they will break out of these distinctions. So the verse can be read, yeah. You don't know now, but actually this Christian experience is the knowledge that you don't know. And, and it's like knowing somebody. When you know somebody, you know that you don't know them. So negativity has turned into positivity. Um, and you enter into a different way of engaging with the world. That's, you know, I know that, that that's a little bit complicated, but think of it in a simple way. There's alienation where you're separated from 
the other when you know when you're a kid it's your family uh for us you know it's it's society and and separation is when you realize oh my family are mortal they're not gods and you realize society when society says whenever they say actually there is no they this is just like a that that's a kind of fiction that that we're entrapped by and that we can be freed from herd thinking. We can be freed from the they to think for ourselves. And when you think for yourself, you don't fit neatly into all of the boxes that society gives you. Um, and that the more you try to fit yourself into the they, um, the worse it is, because you, you always feel like an imposter, like you're doing something wrong. And then there's a theological expression of this. And Christianity can be seen as the theological existential experience of this reality. So again, it's not to do with beliefs. It's not to do with, you know, uh, anything like that. It's to do with an experience where you realize the big other, this, this society, whatever it is, it's always telling you, I say whether it's fate, historical necessity, destiny, God, whatever it is it's, that you're trying to appease, you're trying to work out what it wants. Um, is riven, is, is not at one with itself. And when you realize that, you're free. And that is the rise of the Holy Ghost, that, which is the community basically that's able to say, oh, uh, living responsibly, giving ourselves to the world in fear and trembling without knowing exactly what we should do, but still acting, that is, that's, what, that's the Christian life. And that's what Bonhoeffer meant when he talked about religion as Christianity. When he talked about religion as Christianity, he said it's basically giving yourself to the world in fear and trembling, not knowing what you ought to do, but doing something, just giving yourself to your neighbor and not having some other, some God that's kind of telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And he says, when you do that, that is when you encounter God. All right, there's some thoughts. See if you have any, any questions. Um, was somebody who said that? Uh, ben says J.K. Smith unpacked this uh, in his uh, The Fall of Interpretation. It's interesting. I, knew, I haven't seen Jamie Smith for a long, long time, but I've met him a few times. We did a couple of debates together. I don't think he likes me very much. <laughs> um, but we are quite different in many ways. But we, we do read some of the same material. Uh, we do kind of like work on some of the stuff. So he comes to very different conclusions. But yeah, I do think that, that you know, definitely when I read Jamie Smith a, a while back, um, we are engaging with some similar ideas. Uh, let's see. Chris says, without some framework, oh, to quote, without some framework telling me how to act, Unquote. So, yeah, Chris, you're quoting me. A totally foreign, terrifying concept to most people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, an absolute necessity for spiritual liberation, as Jesus was teaching. Oh, yeah, that, thank you. Yeah, no, it is terrifying. This, very good. I mean, this is why John Paul Sartre said, We are condemned to freedom. I love that phrase because, you know, we think freedom is a great thing, but actually it's terrifying. And we want to give up our freedom. In, in any way we can. And so Sartre says, you know, we either masochistically give our freedom to somebody else or we sadistically, um, you know, try to, uh, you know, make everything into, and not we become God or whatever. But what's difficult is actually realizing that we are free. Even when you give your freedom up, 
that's kind of like you're responsible for that. So yeah, the, I think it's very, very important to see how terrified we really are of, of, of freedom and how we'll try to get rid of it at any, at any step. And the existentialists really grasped this. The one thing some of them didn't, well, no, that's not true, but it's one thing people like Camus didn't realize, I think, is that, that actually what he was saying is very central to um, a radical reading of Christianity. And, uh, you know, that's why Kierkegaard was kind of the founding father of existentialism, interesting. interestingly. So people think it's the opposite, yeah, of Christianity. Christianity is there to, you know, there's a God who tells you exactly how to act. But actually, it seems to be bringing you into a place where you are taking responsibility for your actions. Um, Seth, oh, Seth always says interesting stuff. So let me see. Um, separation, oh, to quote... Oh, I think you're just quoting me or somebody. A separation, therefore, takes place at precisely the point that the subject can formulate the question. What I, I see, Seth, you're quoting Lacan. Um, yeah, so I'll, see, I'll, I'll, I'll read this and then see if we can unpack it. Separation, therefore, takes place at precisely the point that the subject can formulate the question, what am I in the other's desire? And can thus differentiate itself from the desire of the other. Yeah, yeah, this is... This is exactly what Lacan's talking about. He's saying that, that actually a lot of children, what we want is we are asking, what am I to the other? In fact, technically fantasy in psychoanalysis is not what you desire. Fantasy is your way of framing what you think the other desires and how you fit into the other's desire. So there's a weird thing where you go like, every time you fantasize, even if it's just fantasizing about oh, driving a fancy car and whatever, the question is often, well, who is watching the fantasy? So, for example, think of yourself as a director and you're directing your fantasy. But then ask yourself, well, who's the audience? Who is the one who I want to be looking at this fantasy? Who is this fantasy for? Because the fantasy, in a sense, is not yours. I mean, what you fantasize is contingent. It's like, you know, for one person, it's being like James Bond. You know, for another person, it's being a great athlete. For another, it's being a supermodel or whatever. But, but who, who are we fantasizing for? Is it our mother or father? Is it society? Is it who is giving us? Because so fantasy is a way of, interestingly, a, a child and an adult asking how, what does society or what does the other want from me? How do I fit into the world? Um, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird idea, but um, I think it's quite an interesting one. Uh, okay, let me see. Chris, thank you for saying, I want to say I like this. You're saying, like, we love your thoughts. Give us more because I feel like this was a bit rambling and I'm actually thinking maybe I shouldn't post this. <laughs> but, uh, but if you think it's all right, then I will post it. Um, thank you. Yes, Sarah says fundamentalism. Oh, um, by the way, this is the front desk. Give me one second. Hello. Hello, I have Mr. Aaron downstairs. Oh yeah, could you send him up? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Meeting my friend Aaron, who's a pastor, and he's just on his way up, so I'm going to have to stop there. Uh, but yeah, Sarah saying your yeah, fundamentalism can be seen as a way of trying to frame and trying to uh, protect oneself from freedom, from this radical freedom. Um, so yeah, 
Thank you for checking in, and um, I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you showing up at events. I appreciate you engaging with me online. I really do. You allow me to do what I love, and uh, that, means, that means the world to me. So please keep checking in. Let me know what you think. Engage with the work, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye.